You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2012. Today's episode is titled, Starting a Business. What is the biblical basis for business? This is a vexing question for most of us since we typically think of the Bible as a book about spiritual matters. Some business people look to the Bible for inspiration or guidance on ethical decisions, but few seem to consider the Bible as relevant beyond this. Therefore, we don't typically go to the Bible for wisdom on business matters, such as starting a business. Don't start an organization for the purpose of seeking glory, fortune, influence, or independence. Motive is very important to God. The only right motive is to build according to the will and ways of God. Before starting any organization, humbly seek the Lord to discern His will. Make it your agenda to always seek to discern the will and ways of God, and then align yourself accordingly. His will and His ways are discerned best by following the teachings of Scripture. There is no other foundation on which to build successful organizations. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Practices of Kingdom Business. Well, let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to study and learn together. And we thank you for community and for the resources that we have in one another to help each other learn. So may this be a powerful time of transformation for us to line us up with your will and your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we want to talk a little bit about some practical tips about how you actually conduct business in a biblical manner. You could call this biblical worldview of business, or you could call it biblical principles of business, whatever you'd like to call it. That's up to you. How many here are in business? Okay. How many of you own a business? All right. How many of you started a business? Okay. How many of you want to start a business? Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. So how many of you want to sell a business? Huh? <laughs> all right. Tell me why you started the business. Not all of you at once now. Those of you that started a business, why did you start a business? I couldn't stand working for else. You couldn't stand working for someone else. Okay. Why else did you start your business? I wanted to make some money. You want to make money. Okay. So an opportunity happened, and your interpretation was that God opened the door. Correct? All right. What else? Educate children. Had a passion to do something that you really enjoyed, and you thought, why not take this thing? Okay. Passion to do something you really enjoyed. Somebody else? Desire to help. Desire to help people. Peter. Be obedient to the will of God. To be obedient. Oh, that's an interesting thought. We'll play off that for a second, okay? If you look at Scripture and you ask yourself, what is the biblical reason, the biblical basis for business, what would you say? Huh? Obedience to what? To God about what? Okay. Danny? I think it has a lot to do with serving people. Okay. Certainly that's a practice that we want to do. We want to serve people. Yeah? How many of you have been, have been in the BLS? A bunch of you. 
You remember the conversation that Dennis had about the building permit? Anybody remember that? Okay. What was that all about? I guess you need to go back and do it again. Yeah. A building permit is an authorization to build something, right? Now, that's not, obviously, the analogy is not 100% perfect, but it gives you kind of a picture. Really, the only legitimate reason to start a business is if you've been authorized by God to start that business. That is based on the predicate that God is sovereignly in control of his universe, and we are his servants sent here to do his bidding. So if we are here to do his bidding, then we don't need to do anything unless he's directed us to do it. Would you agree? Is everybody on board with that? Is that a foreign concept? I take it it's a foreign concept. Most of us don't think that way when we think about business. Have you noticed that when things go on in the business world, it's almost like we take on a different mindset? For example, when you have a problem in your company, what do you do? You have a problem. Real unhappy customer. Something went really sour. What are you going to do? We're going to try to solve it. What are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do? You guys solve problems? Huh? What do you do? Find out what happened. Okay? So you've been getting to gather data, right? Who did what? Who said this? And how to go astray? And then what are you trying to do next? Come up with a solution? Yeah. What are my options here? Figure out a solution and, you know, solve this problem. Okay? Now, how many of you go to church? Okay? What happens when there's a problem in the church? Pray. Really? What else do you do? You look at Scripture? Consider what Scripture might have to say? Maybe even call a fast. Y'all ever fast? Okay? So maybe you call a prayer meeting. We had a situation here with our senior pastor not too long ago. And we had three days of 24-hour prayer for his health. Do you hear two different ways of approaching problem solving? Are you awake? Okay. I heard two different ways. Did you hear two different ways? Huh? What does that say to you? Huh? This is called dualism. And we all do it. Even those of us that say we don't want to do it, we do it anyway. Because we are trained, our default is to think one way in business and a totally different way when we get into the spiritual world of the church. Is anybody convicted that, hey, we need to change that? We need to do this differently? I hope so. Otherwise, you're just going to continue being dualistic. Business is not, not primarily about money. So let me just ask you this. Those of you looking at the book saying, does he follow the outline? Um, sort of. Okay. I want to be faithful to, to hit some of those points, but I also want to make some other points that are not in the outline. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that if you have money, that money can pretty well take care of your problems? You can pretty much buy whatever you need to buy, hire whomever you need to hire. Pay off your debts, all those kinds of things. So if you have money, your problems are pretty well solved. 
You say no? Does anybody think that? I know you do. See, what you're doing is you think it's a trick question. I know that. My wife and I were at a church dinner not too long ago, and we had these young people, the 20-somethings around the table. We intentionally picked that table. We thought it would make us feel younger. So we're around the table with them. And when I'm around the young people, I love to ask them questions. So I start asking them questions, you know, like, why are you working? You know, how did you decide to go to work there? And finally my wife leans over and says, it's a trick question. <laughs> she tipped them off. I don't ask trick questions. I just try to find out the truth. Okay? So I'm going to fitting myself there. You may not agree, but I don't think it's a trick question. All right, so I think I'm going to bet that most of you, if you're brutally honest, you believe that if you have money, it'll solve your problems. And if you won't verbalize that, I believe if we looked at how you lived, how you live would tell us that. So may I direct you to Scripture? Would that be okay? All right. Let's pick uh, the book of Revelation. You like that book? And maybe chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to the Laodicean church. Now keep in mind, this is Jesus talking to people who profess to be Christians. That would be people in this room probably profess to be Christians. So Jesus is talking to them. And he's not really very nice to them. In fact, you know, if we were to have this kind of conversation, somebody might scold us for being unkind. So this is what he says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now he gets specific about this lukewarmness. He says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. That's what they're saying. These Christians in this particular city, that's the way they thought. I got money, my problems are solved. Jesus says, okay, but you do not realize. Now, you know what that means? You're deceived. If you don't realize something, you're in deception. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Any questions? This is Jesus talking to rich people. Maybe somebody like Buffett or Gates or Carlos Slim. You know who Carlos Slim is? You guys read magazines? You know? He's the wealthiest man in the world. We're supposedly $73, $74 billion. Whereabouts, round numbers. You know how he made that money? Telephony in Mexico, which means he probably made it through a lot of graft and corruption. Okay? But he's the wealthiest man in the world. So you got Carlos Slim, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, some of the wealthiest people in the world, arguably the three wealthiest people in the world, that probably think that they're in pretty good shape. But if Jesus were talking to them, you think he might say this? I think he would. Because he's saying here, you think money is the solution to your problems? You are in la-la land. Money is not the solution to your problem. He says, you are in reality wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That does not sound good. 
Then he goes on to say, I'm going to give you some advice. Here's what you need to do. You need to take that money and buy gold refined in fire. Now, he's not talking about literal gold here. He's talking figuratively of true wealth, which only comes through Christ. So he's saying you ought to be using your wealth to get real wealth. Now, you say, well, how do you do that? What does that mean? Well, let's take a look at Luke chapter 16 because we get a clue what that looks like. Verse 10 of Luke chapter 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little can also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, money, who will trust you with true riches? If you don't steward money properly, who's going to give you real riches? So money is like monopoly money. It's play money compared to the true riches that Jesus is talking about. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, if money is your agenda in business, then you're worshiping money. If God is your agenda in business, and he's authorized you to start the company you're started with, he will provide the resources for you to do it, and he has a way for you to conduct that business. And in the end, the money is all about stewarding that money in such a way that you wind up with true riches, which is righteousness. It is doing things that God has directed you to do with the money. The way I like to look at money is money is like a screwdriver. You say, what? Money is like a screwdriver. I'm having an answer for you since you're not answering. Okay? Now, how is money like a screwdriver? Well, what is a screwdriver? A screwdriver is a tool. Money is a tool. And when you begin to see money as a tool, first of all, to train you in how to live and walk obediently to God, and secondly, it's a tool to do the will of God. When you begin to see it that way, then you begin to move into, you qualify yourself for the real deal. When my children were young, they wanted money to go do whatever they wanted to do. Okay, So we would give them a little allowance, and we'd see how they handled it. Okay, If you make wise choices, you show us that you can manage those resources well, then maybe we'll give you a little more responsibility. But if you don't show us you can handle that well, what are we going to do? We're not going to give you more. That's the way God treats us. Those of you that may be struggling financially, that the resources don't seem to be there, one of the things you ought to ask yourself is, am I really stewarding these resources properly? Because if you're not, then your father's probably not going to give you more until you learn how to do that. This is a principle, a kingdom principle. This is a practic of how to do business in the kingdom. Just another case study. One day I had a client call me. And this client is in a business that requires travel. So she's got a number of associates with her that needed to travel for to do trade shows and marketing and other things. So uh, she calls me up one day. She says, I just need to get your advice on something. I said, okay, what is it? She said, I've got a number of employees here that need to travel and they need a credit card. I said, yeah, it's hard to travel today without a credit card. She said, well, they don't have a credit card. And I said, well, why don't they have a credit card? She said, because they have bad credit. 
said, well, okay, that's usually what happens when you don't properly use a credit card, you will lose it, and obviously that results in bad credit. So what do you want to do? She says, I'd like to give them a company card. So let me get this straight. You've got these employees that have proven they can't handle money well because they mishandled their own credit cards, and you want to give them a company credit card? Now tell me how this computes. You see, when you don't think biblically, you can make foolish decisions. And you can give people credit cards that shouldn't have them because they've proven they're not worthy. They're not capable of handling them. So a principle of the kingdom is you let people demonstrate that they're trustworthy before you grant them privileges. Okay, I wanted to make the point to you that's very seldom made that, number one, if you started a business, the only reason to start it is because you've been authorized by God to start it. God is in control of his universe. Secondly, You started the business not about money. Money is never the end game. Money is a tool, a resource to do the will of God. And so you've got to start looking at it that way. Now, third thing we want to talk about, we'll get back to the notes here. God has authorized a system of authority. We live under delegated authority. And God ordains all authority, even dysfunctional authority. And one of the real tests of anyone you see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to find a text to look at, is whether or not you can function under dysfunctional authority. Will you be obedient under dysfunctional authority? One of my first encounters with authority came when I was a young Ph.D. Many of you may be aware that in the 60s, President Kennedy challenged the nation to go to the moon by the end of the decade. Well, that was in about 1961, so we had about eight years to do it. So Congress allocated a lot of resources to training scientists and engineers. Well, I started college in 1965, and there was a huge, huge push to train scientists, mathematicians, engineers. And so I was caught up in that flurry of activity, and I started studying science, physics in particular. When I got my undergraduate degree in 1969... We had landed on the moon. In fact, well, we landed within two months of I received my degree. I got my degree in May, and we landed on the moon in July. So there was still a huge push on this. And so I'd applied for graduate school. And believe it or not, I got a research assistantship as a first-year graduate student, which was almost unheard of. And I got an occupational deferment from the draft. Now, that was almost unheard of. I was stunned at that. I thought that had to be a mistake. Nobody else was getting occupational deferments. Why would I get one? In fact, my father-in-law, I was newly married at the time, he worked for E-Systems, and there were engineers being drafted from E-Systems to go into the Army. And I couldn't figure it out. But now looking back on it, I think I know what it was. You see, I was a physicist, and they saw a connection between me and the space program. And that was a priority. And so that's the only explanation I could come up with. So here I am, I'm going into graduate school, I get a research assistantship, which normally that goes to third-year graduate students, not first year, and then I've got this occupational deferment. So just bang, the doors are wide open, so I'm going through this Ph.D. program I get through in four years. Now, the average Ph.D. program is at least six, sometimes seven years, and I knew guys that had been there eight and nine years in graduate school, and I got through in graduate school in four years. When I got out in 1973 with my Ph.D., I started applying for jobs. Now, you know what happened between 69 and 73? 
the government decided we achieved the objective of getting to the moon, we don't need to spend all this money on the space program anymore. So they started turning off the spigot. And about the same time, you may recall, we had our first energy crisis. Does anybody remember that? Anybody remember being in line to get gas? Okay. So that happened. And so now the economy goes into the ditch and the country really changes course. So all of a sudden in the 70s, there's this massive number of scientists and engineers coming out onto the market and there are no jobs. I remember I was very blessed in 73. When I got out, I had three job offers. And I took the one with TI. I went to work for TI. I worked there for about a year and a half and was on the team that built the first ion implantation machine for TI. Does anybody know what that is? Pardon me? Texas Instruments. Yes. We built an ion implantation machine, which those of you that have semiconductor devices like cell phones and computers of all types, those devices are made through the technology that's now called ion implantation. And I was on a team that built the first machine. It enabled us to increase the capacity of a TI by tenfold with that one machine. It was a new technology for how to make semiconductor material. So, bingo, man, instantly we had this increased capacity for semiconductor material. The economy goes in the ditch. So TI, in its infinite wisdom, decides all you wonderful scientists and engineers that we've hired within the last two years, you're fired. We all got laid off. Now there's this massive number of scientists and engineers that have been trained because of the space program that some were fortunate to get jobs, and now the ones who got jobs, they lost their jobs. So there's this glut of talent that's available, and nobody needs them. So people wound up doing all kinds of things. I mean, I know some of them that drove taxi cabs. Some of them wound up on Wall Street doing work that's called quant work. You ever heard of quant work? Quantitative analysis. They were called quants. They're the ones that introduced a lot of the fancy technology that's going on on Wall Street today. Some of you may have heard of Monte Carlo techniques. That all came from those Ph.D. physicists that were deposed from the scientific world and put into these various business arenas. So I was fortunate in the sense that I had my dad. He brought me into the family business. So I got into the family business, and one of the first things that happened to me was I was sitting there in this office that he gave me. I'm still stunned at what's happened to me. You know, I had trained to be a scientist. Now I'm working for my dad in the construction world. So I'm sitting there at my desk, and my dad walks in. It's a scary thing when dad walks into the office. He looks at me. Then he looks over in the corner and there's a stack of bricks. He says, if I tell you to move that stack of bricks from that corner to that corner, will you do it? Now, what do you think a Ph.D. physicist would say to that kind of question? Huh? Why? I looked at that corner and I looked at this corner. I said, what's the difference? Who cares what corner it's in? You know, is there some kind of solar phenomena that will happen if I move those bricks over here? Will the equilibrium of this building be changed in some way? I mean, what's the point? The corner's the corner. It's a fungible corner. You know what a fungible means? It's interchangeable. Okay? You know, your currency. If you have two C notes, they're fungible. They're interchangeable. Okay? So I'm sitting there looking at that. What's the deal? He said, no, no, no. If I ask you to move the bricks from that corner to that corner, will you do it? Well, I'm kind of blockhead, but it took me maybe five minutes, and I finally figured out what he was trying to say to me. You know, sometimes it's not about being literal. You know, it's about seeing the picture. What he was saying to me is, 
Yeah, I know you're very bright. You've been through a Ph.D. program and all that stuff, but I want to know, will you submit to me? Will you do what I ask you to do? You see, that's a key element in kingdom business is you have to have people that will submit. If they will not submit, then you will have all kinds of challenges trying to accomplish things. And so I got the lesson there. And what I learned was it didn't matter whether I understood it. It didn't matter whether I wanted to do it or not. It didn't matter whether I liked doing it or agreed with it. That didn't matter. What matters is, will I submit? And that's God's system. Delegated authority, submission to authority. The next point that is on here is it's called a heathen fact. You can't make chicken salad out of chicken manure. And then he quotes the text out of Matthew 13. By the way, these are not my notes. These are Doug Russell. How many of you know Doug Russell? None of you know Doug Russell? Doug's a very fine man, and he prepared these notes some years ago for SCS, so I'm just playing off his notes. And It's a very interesting quote. He quotes here, then the tares and the sons. He's talking about the wheat and the tares. You know, they grow up together. And what he's pointing out is, you know, you always, in any company, you're going to have wheat and tares. But what we need to do, what we need to learn about kingdom business is we've got to learn how to find the right people. Because if you don't, you'll have a whole lot of tares. Okay, we need to learn how to build on the wheat. Well, how do you find the wheat? The real deal. What's the qualification or what's the criteria? What's the principle that we would use to find the real deal? Now, those of you that have been through the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar that, that I teach, You've heard the principle C4, okay? And we also use that in the business leadership school. Dennis has taken that principle and incorporated that in the school, and he, he's modified it slightly. So I'm going to use my version of it. C4 is calling, character, capability, commissioning. Okay, now what he says, it's calling, character, competency, and context. Okay, and it's essentially the same. Competency and capability are the same. Commissioning and context are slightly different. I think my term is a little broader because I think my term includes context. Commissioning is what authority figures do to enable you to do what you're called to do. So if you want to have the right people in your company, what you want is people who have C4 to do each job in the company. So are they called? Do they have a passion to do what they're doing? Secondly... Do they have the character? Thirdly, do they have the capability? And fourthly, do I trust them enough? you got to think about this. Do I trust them enough to let them do their job? Did you hear that? How many of you have hired people and you really didn't trust them, so you tried to control them? Huh? Who's done that? Chickens. We've all done that. If anybody's been a manager, it's probably run into those kind of situations i got to hire somebody. This is the best person I can find, but I don't totally trust them, so I'm going to control them. I'm going to micromanage them. I mean, have you ever had any success micromanaging? It doesn't work. You want a C4 person, somebody that you can totally trust to do that job. That's a person, that's a wheat. Any person that doesn't have those characteristics, on some level, they're going to be a tear. One of the ways that you know you have non-C4 people is look at how much time you have to spend with them. Because non-C4 people will take a lot of time. 
Then if you get into situations where you've got a lot to do, a lot of documenting, another sign. You see, C4 people makes the burden, the yoke easy and the burden light. Things just happen. It's just a marvelous thing. When you have a C4 person, just stand back and be amazed. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, gee, finding C4 people is really tough. It is. It's very hard. They're not being produced. They're not coming out of our families. They're not coming out of our schools. They're not coming out of our churches. So the burden is on you, the manager, the business owner, to produce those people. And it's going to make your job a lot easier when you produce them. Because you can assign them their work task and stand back. It'll be amazing. Now, there's another principle associated with this called the principle of congruence. And it really gets back to the sovereignty of God. Congruence says this. When you have an organization and each position in the organization is filled by a person who's doing what they're called to do, that is, they have C4 to do it, then what happens is, those people enable the organization to fulfill its purpose. You see, when personal destiny is fulfilled, then the organizational destiny is fulfilled. But the predicate is you have to have the right people. That's the principle of congruence. When you don't have C4 people, it's going to be very hard to make chicken salad because you don't have the right people, and people are the key. Anybody want to say something about this? <laughs> it's a big thing. Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, which is part of the second-year curriculum of the Business Leadership School, he figures this out by studying pragmatically the companies in his sample set, and he's discovered one of the keys to those companies' success is they have the right people. Now, he doesn't really know how to define that too well. He comes up with his hedgehog principle, which is almost the C4 concept. It's close to it, but not quite there. Because we understand Scripture, we have the principle. By the way, have you noticed something about God's universe? Someone that doesn't know the Lord, they have one source of revelation. One source. It's called the natural world. General revelation. That's all they know. And by the grace of God, He allows them to function and have some level of success based on that one source of revelation. But you know, somebody that knows the Lord has three sources of revelation. You ever thought about that? They have the natural revelation, that is, general revelation, just like everybody else. They also have the Scripture. And they also have the Holy Spirit. The Scripture is God's special revelation. It's His handbook for how we are to live in His universe. It is His universe, right? He created all the rules, which means He created the rules of business. So this is his handbook. Then we have the Holy Spirit. If you know the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And one of the things that you can develop is the skill to learn to discern what the Spirit is saying. And the Spirit is here to guide us into all truth and to give us specific direction. You remember when David was fighting the Philistines one time and he had already defeated them once and now they came back again. I guess they didn't have enough. So here they come back again. And David inquires of the Lord, Lord, what shall I do? And the Lord says, David, this time you don't hit them directly like you did last time. This time what I want you to do, I want you to take your army and go hide them in the trees. And when you hear the leaves rustle in the top, charge. And I'm going to give them to you. 
Now, what kind of strategy is that? Go hide the army in the trees and wait for the, the leaves to rustle? That's a divine strategy. That's a strategy that comes from God from hearing and discerning the will of God. You see, people that don't know the Lord will never get that strategy. Now, here's the deal. Most of us don't think God gives us strategy for business. Well, Jesus has got into that sales process, has got into finding those new clients, has got into solving that problem, has got into buying or selling a company, has got into what we should do with these resources. Yeah, he's into all that. But if you don't know how to discern, then you are living no better than probably the pagans. Do you think that if you could use all three sources of revelation effectively, you'd have an edge? Who wants an edge in business? Hey, you got an edge if you know how to use it. What happens, we keep looking at the edge like the world does. I was talking to a lady that has been through the BLS, and she works for a company that does business with major retailers. And she told me something rather amazing. This company actually has hired a vendor to go into these retail stores and to sabotage the competition. You know how you sabotage the competition? Well, one of the things you do is you go in the retail store and you pull all the price tags off. So people want to come and they want to shop. They see a series of products there and all the competition's price tags are gone. The only thing is your product there with its price tag. What are you going to do? Well, I don't know how much that costs, but I know how much this costs, so I'm probably going to buy this one. Okay? Now, how do you feel about that? Hmm? Yeah, you know that in the end that's not going to get blessed. That's the way the world does business. That's the way the world thinks. It's about getting an edge. We've got to learn to think biblically. You see, what God is all about is he wants to tell us that strategy. He wants us to learn to live like the disciples when they went out to fish one night. They went out and fished all night, and I'm not a fisherman, but I'm told that the best time to fish is at night. Is that right? Those of you that fish, is that correct? It's when the fish bite. I'm also told that close to the shore, there's usually not many fish. So here they come, dragging in early in the morning. They've caught nothing. And they see Jesus on the shore. He yells out to them, hey, did you catch anything? And said, no, didn't catch a thing. He says, throw your net on the right side. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those fishermen. Okay? Now, this is Jesus. They know it's Jesus. They also know that he's a carpenter. They're professional fishermen. Now, what would you say? You're an idiot. There's no fish out there. We're near the shore. The fish are not near the shore. But because it's you, Jesus, we're going to do it. A lot of faith, right? Throw the net in, and now they can't hardly pull it in. Now, see, that was a divine strategy for fishing. They could never come up with. It was specific revelation for that situation at that time that God gave them. Did you think God could give you that? Well, absolutely. He's a loving father. And so we've got to learn to think biblically. So here's my thesis. Most of us, we approach business like deists. Can I label us as deist? Does that offend you? You know what a deist is? A deist is someone 
who believes that God exists, that he created the universe, he made all the rules, but then he walked away and he leaves it up to us to figure out what's going on. We kind of work out our own situations. We just take his rules and apply them. So that's what a deist is. A deist effectively views business as a naturalist. That is, the only thing that's relevant in business is the natural world, which is why when we approach problems, we don't immediately default to prayer. We don't immediately default to seeking the Lord. We don't default to looking in the Word. We immediately think, okay, let's figure this thing out. Let's find out what happened, who did what, and what are the options here, and let's figure out the cheapest way to get this thing solved, right? That's what we do. We function like deists and naturalists. And we need to learn to start dropping into prayer. We need to learn to dwell in prayer in the workplace. We need to learn to have the Word of God at our fingertips. You want to hear a story? 1945, a man named Marion Wade had a small home-based business. Marion Wade was viewed as a model Christian. He was also a business owner. His pastor thought that he was just, if you asked his pastor, tell me the best Christian in your congregation, Marion Wade's it. Every time the doors open, he's there. He's been faithful church attender for 15 years. He tithes. He supports the missions program. He supports the youth program. You know, he does that. If I, anything I ask him to do, he'll do it. He is the greatest. Marion Wade has a business. He cleans carpets and exterminates moths. One day he's in a home, and he's got his chemical canister there, and he's spraying for moths, and all of a sudden the canister explodes in his face. He winds up in the hospital. He spends a year in the hospital. Now, he didn't know first whether or not he would live. And then after he got well enough to realize, well, I'm probably going to live, but will I see? He didn't know if he'd ever see. And so as he lay there in that bed, he began to ponder. Now, in 1945, those of you that have any memory of history, some of you may have been alive. Most of you probably were not. They didn't have TVs. There were some radios. But basically, when people went home at night, what they did is they read or they got together and played games together. Well, Mary and his wife were very devoted to reading Scripture at night. That's what they did. Mary had a, an easy chair, he had a lamp, and he had a table. And on that table was his Bible. So he would come home, he would have his dinner. After dinner, he would sit on his chair, and he would read his Bible. He might read his Bible for two or three hours. He did that every night. So while he's in this hospital room... All these verses that he's learned over the years begin to come back. And so he's praying and asking the Lord, you know, Lord, I know that you're in this, that you have something you want to say. And so the Lord begins to talk to him. And in the course of this conversation, Marion remembers a verse, a verse that would become his life verse, a verse that he had read many times and meditated on many times and never really thought he understood it. So this particular night, he reflects on the verse. It says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. As he meditated on that, he said, you know, I really do want to be prosperous and successful. Who wouldn't want to be prosperous and successful? Everybody here wants to be prosperous and successful. So he said, okay. Now, he's doing all this from memory. He's blindfolded, remember, his eyes. 
So he's remembering this text. And so he starts talking to the Lord and says, Lord, how do I become prosperous and successful? And then he recognized the secret is given right here. It says, meditate on the law. Now, this is a reference to God's written revelation. Day and night. What does that mean? He said, you know, at night I meditate on the Word of God. I spend the evenings reading and studying the Word of God. But during the day, I'm running my business like every other business owner. And then he had one of those moments where the Holy Spirit spoke clearly to him. He said, Marion, you're spiritually bankrupt. What? The greatest Christian in his church? The one the pastor felt so good about? How could he be bankrupt? And then he got it. He says, I'm sabotaging my success because I'm not meditating on the word during the day when I'm working. How do I do that? And so he began to dialogue with the Lord. What he came face to face with was his dualism. He didn't know the terminology dualism. He hadn't met Dennis yet. But, and actually Dennis didn't create the terminology. But for many of us, Dennis introduced the terminology to us. But Mary didn't know that terminology, but he knew he was living differently at work from the rest of his life. And he knew that could not be right. He knew that you had to live the same. It didn't matter where you were. You are living on the word of God, period. So he had a come to Jesus meeting in the hospital room. And over the course of time, as he prayed and sought the Lord, by the way, sadly, his pastor wasn't part of this. Pastor could have been part of it, but he wasn't. He asked the Lord, Lord, if you will grant me my sight and grant me more time, I commit to you that I will run my business based on the word of God. The Lord granted that request. Soon, Marion got out of the hospital and he returned to his home-based business. His employees are there. He has about six employees. They're delighted to see him. They're just excited Boss, it's great to have you back. We've missed you. We're glad you're well. We're glad your eyes are well. You know, we just thank the Lord. See, all of his employees were professing Christians, but they were doing us like him, at least prior to his experience in the hospital. Marion said, gentlemen, I'm delighted to be back. It's great to see you. Thank you for your good work while I've been gone. You've done a wonderful job, but you need to know something. I met Jesus in the hospital. What? You already knew the Lord. Yeah, I knew about him. I was kind of like Job. I'd heard about him, but now I see. Remember Job 42? When Job at the end of the book, he says, Look, all that you put me through, all this suffering and everything, it was worth it all because you took me to another level of revelation. I had heard of you, now I see you. And so Marion said to his employees, Guys, you need to understand, I'm changed. I'm not the same guy. From now on, This company will be built and managed. Every decision will be made based on the Word of God. Pulls out his Bible, throws it up on the desk, says, that's our handbook. What's this? I said, guys, you don't have to stay. If you want to leave, I fully understand. But this is going to be our handbook. Now, you know when that happens to you? When you make that kind of stand, when you decide... This is the new way we're going to do business. It's no longer the dualistic approach. It's now a holistic approach. 
that Jesus Christ is Lord of everything, including my business. I make decisions based on him and his word, on the revelation of the word of God, and on the leading of the Holy Spirit. I am not limited to physical reality. I have all three sources of revelation here I draw on to discern the will of God. That's how I'm going to live. That's how this business is going to be run, no matter where it takes us. Now, what do you think happens when you make that kind of stand? You guys know you're going to get tested. You're going to get a gut check. You know what a gut check is? Find out, are you really willing to do this? So he had a gut check. It came very soon. Marion had a new product idea. It was a new cleaner for rugs. You know, the problem with cleaning rugs is you can't get them too wet. Then they shrink. you got to get the right balance. And he kind of figured out a way to get the right balance to clean rugs pretty well. So he started going out to rug dealers, and he started sharing with them his secret for cleaning rugs. They really liked it. So they started signing him up to provide the service for them to clean the rugs. So they would sell the rugs. And the homeowners would put them in. And then when they would call the rug company, say, my rug's dirty. And they'd say, great, give us your information. And then they would pass on the call to Marion's company. And Marion's company will go out there representing the rug company, just like it was the rug company's service department. That's a pretty cool deal. Nobody knew that the rug company really didn't have a service department. It was Marion's company all along. So it was a cool deal. Well, it worked great until he ran across a rug company that decided they wanted to steal his idea. I know none of you have run into that before, but there are people like that out there that want to steal things. So this rug company decided they would set up their own service department, and they began to cherry pick. The calls would come in, and they would decide which calls they wanted, and the ones they didn't want, they'd shoot over to Marion. Well, everything's rocking along, and then one day Marion gets a call. You know, some way or another, a customer had found out that Marion's company was providing the service, and she had had her rug cleaned, and she wasn't satisfied. Now, you need to know, Marion prided himself on doing great work. That was another part of his revelation, is we're going to do excellent work, because Scripture tells us we're not working for men, we're working for the Lord. You see, this is a biblical worldview. So he's stunned. He's really upset. Who is it that went over there and did this lousy job? We start searching through her records. They can't find anything. And wait a minute, what's going on here? So they dig a little bit deeper and they discover that this rug company has stolen their product and is cherry picking the service calls contrary to a written agreement. The written agreement they had with this rug company was that all this rug service would go to Marion's company, period. That was it. The rug company would not set up a service department and not compete. So now they had breached the contract. Now, what would we do with something like that? Sue them. Just sue the socks off of them, get as much money as we can. That's what we'd do. What do you think Marion did? He dropped on his knees. He said, Lord, your servant needs help. I need wisdom and discernment to know what you want me to do in this situation. He sought the Lord. He discerned through prayer, through counsel with his wife, through counsel with key advisors. Meditating on the word, he discerned that they were supposed to not pursue legal action. Now, maybe sometimes God would, would lead you to pursue that, perhaps. So I'm not saying this is an absolute never sue, but I think 
probably more often than not, suing is not the way you're going to go. And so he chose not to. Instead, he went to the company and he says, you know, you've breached your contract and one of my options is to terminate the contract and that's what I'm going to do. Which means he'll have no more access to our product. You won't have access to our service. You won't be able to provide service to your rug customers. However, we will continue the contract through the end of the year. But when the end of the year is up, the contract is null and void. That gives you time to figure out what you're going to do. He was very gracious to him. Now, you need to know, Marion's company was very fragile because he had been gone a year. And, you know, the company never works quite as well with the owner gone. It had been struggling. It was just getting by, and they needed that revenue from this rug cleaning business. And now, as they began to seek the Lord, this was probably the summertime, and they make this decision to terminate this contract and not sue. Marion looked ahead, and by the natural sight, you know what he saw? What he saw was we're going to be bankrupt by the end of the year. There's no way. So now he's got a choice. Am I going to believe what I see with my sight, or am I going to trust that God really spoke to me and gave me what he wanted me to do in this situation? It's a choice. It's a gut check. When you walk with God, you're going to get those gut checks. And they're designed to validate whether you're the real deal or not. Marion Wade had determined in that hospital room when he was sick, he had determined it doesn't matter whether I win or lose in business. What matters is I obey the Lord. So there he is now, six months later, with this gut check, and it was a no-brainer for him. He said, Lord, I have made the commitment to you to follow you, to obey you. That's success. If the company goes out of business, it goes out of business. So I commit it to you. I'm going to seek to obey you to the best of my ability to the last penny. What do you think happened? Lord turned it around. He did not go bankrupt. What came forth from that was a company that you know today as Service Master. You think these companies just pop up out of thin air? No, they happen because godly men will defy the ways of the world to do it God's way. And when you do it God's way, there is prosperity and success. Now, please know, I know that godly people can go bankrupt. That's not the point. The point is, if you want success, success is obedience. Success is obedience. And when you get clear on that definition of success, then you're like Paul in Philippians 4. Dennis quoted that tonight. When Paul said, look, he's talking to the Philippians. The Philippians are saying to him, Paul, you you need money, we're happy to give you money. Now, you know the Philippians were retired Roman soldiers. Did you know that? The city of Philippi was not a Jewish colony. It was a Roman colony, and it was an outpost for the Roman Empire. And what better way to have an outpost than to have retired soldiers? They understand the importance of recognizing when the enemy's on the move and it was on the Roman road so they could quickly get to Rome and warn the Roman authorities. So these Roman soldiers are very proud people. They're older people. They're mature people. And so they want to help the Apostle Paul. They want to help the kingdom. And Paul says, well, 
I appreciate your wanting to help. You're very kind and gracious. And I thank you for the gifts that you've given so far. And thank you for the gifts that you will give in the future. But you need to understand something. Money is not the game. I've learned the secret. You remember the movie City Slickers? Curly said, you just got to know the secret. Remember that? Y'all awake. Hello. It's kind of a cute part of the movie. You know, just this one thing. It's a secret of life. Well, Curly didn't know what it was, but Apostle Paul knew. He said, here's the secret. Whether I have a little or a lot is not relevant. What's relevant is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's true in business. You see, obedience is the game. Alignment with God is the game. So we've got to learn, if we're going to practice biblical principles in the workplace, we've got to learn to think biblically. We've got to learn to act biblically. We've got to learn that obedience is far more important than actual monetary success. But that's a hard one for most of us. Okay. The second section there, doing it in the kingdom, which is the operating principles, the key things that he notes there. The first one he notes is serving in meekness produces favor. Let me say this. Scripture says this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How many of you have been proud in business? Every time we've been in pride, we've been opposed by God. And that shows up. It shows up in all kinds of problems, including financial problems. So, number one, if you want to have the favor of God in your business, you've got to start with humility. Now, here's another one. James 4 says this. If you are working to make money for your own pleasure, does anybody know what it says you are? You've become an enemy of God. You say, wait a minute. I use my money for my pleasure. You've got to understand what he's saying. He's not saying you can't have fun. What he's saying is your agenda for the use of your money, the focus should not be on your pleasure. It's got to be on doing the will of God. You see, if we're going to do business biblically, we've got to learn to do it his way. And he's got some very specific principles. Another principle he's got on here is long-range planning. I know some of you think long-range planning is what am I going to have for breakfast in the morning. Okay? That's not what he's talking about. You know, Scripture says that we are charged to plan. Man plans his ways, Proverbs 16, but the Lord directs his steps. Okay? So the word way is kind of a broad term, isn't it? But a step is a more specific term, isn't it? So what God is saying here is, I expect you to plan, and then after you plan, I'm going to give you the course corrections as you walk it out. That's the way God works. So it's our responsibility to plan. It's his responsibility to give us those corrections. goes on to the next point is, business must be a win-win situation. What's a win-win situation? Where did that come from? Anybody recognize where that came from? Remember Covey? The habits of highly successful people, remember that? That's where that idea came from. That happens to be, I think, a biblical concept, but I would like to say to us as professing Christians, we ought to be telling the Mormons the biblical principles. 
Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we stepping up and writing these books and teaching these principles? Well, may I suggest it's because we're dualist. We don't think that business is worthy of our attention. It's not worthy of biblical scrutiny. So we don't do these things. So we let the pagans do them. You know what Jesus said? If my followers don't praise me, what's going to happen? The rocks are going to cry out. That's what's happening. The rocks are crying out. And the unsaved world are writing the books that we ought to be writing. And they're never going to write them as well as we write them because we have three sources of revelation. They're writing based on one. This is why good to great, you know, it's close, but it's not on target. Covey's close, but not on target. We can put it on target, but we've got to decide to step up and do it and see it holistically. Okay, we're running out of time here. Prayer. We've talked a little bit about prayer. We don't hesitate in the context of the church to pray. But when it comes to business, about all we do is these kind of little prayers before meetings and things as if we're just kind of giving a tip to God. It's not a serious thing. We've got to learn to seriously pray about our work. I love the way my wife works. My wife runs a private school. And she gets up in the morning at 4.30 in the morning so she can exercise. She can have her quiet time. She can eat breakfast. She can change clothes five times. Okay? See, the women understand that. Men don't get that. And then she leaves at 7 o'clock to get there at 7.30 for prayer before the school day starts. You see, she understands how critical that is. Every day is a war because the enemy is trying to disrupt the kingdom of God in that business. That's true of your company, too. It doesn't matter what company it is or where it is. Whatever business you're in, the enemy is trying to disrupt the kingdom of God every day. And if you don't take seriously that warfare, you will become a prisoner of war. And he will reign over your company. We've got to learn to take prayer very seriously. If you want a great practice for your business, start being serious about praying for everything. Whatever's going on, you need to bathe it in prayer. And you need to seek God and get his mind, his will, his tactics, his strategy, his solution, his thoughts. And when you begin to do that, you begin to practice a business that is honoring to God and truly will glorify him. May the Lord give us grace to live at that level and to practice these principles. Lord, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for each person here and the hunger and the thirst to know you and to walk with you and to become kingdom people. Be kingdom people in every area of life. To learn to meditate on the word of God at work, at home, at church, in the park, at school, wherever they go, they meditate on the Word. They're communing with you all the time. Make us people that live that way so that we can do what you called us to do and we can honor you and glorify you in our work. Thank you for the privilege of serving you in the workplace. Enable us to do it well. In Jesus' name, amen.